This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Let's be honest, Peers. Life can often feel like a labyrinth of wrong turns and disasters. But for our next guest, it was life's doozy curveballs that led her to becoming the incredible entrepreneur that she is today. I'm so excited to welcome Lauren Crystal to the show today. Lauren is the managing director of the award-winning creative agency, Your Creative. She is also the co-founder of the clever project management tool, Hassle, and winner of the 2019 Telstra Business Victorian Emerging Leaders Award. I'm thrilled to talk to Lauren today about how a series of disasters led her to becoming an entrepreneur, how she got Your Creative off the ground, and why we shouldn't hold ourselves back. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Lauren Crystal. Lauren, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, you know, you and I connected recently via LinkedIn, I think it was. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work that you're doing in the digital space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the espresso martini. (laughs) We're at the Esplanade Hotel today recording. And so, you know, whatever treats we can bring, we do. (laughs) I love that. Look, so so for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. So my name's Lauren Crystal and I am the managing director of Your Creative Agency, which is a humor-centered design agency. And I'm also the co-founder of Hassle, which is a project collaboration tool um, that's now used all over the world by different companies. So I've got two businesses and then um, a lot of the work that we do is in the social impact space as well. So very busy, but everything evolves around uh, human-centered design and combining that with the technology aspect. Mm. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I cannot wait to dive deeper into you and your work. <laughs> We've got so many things happening happening for you at the moment. But before we do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up? 
And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and your career so far? Yeah, so you can probably tell by the accent, I'm not native to Australia. So I'm originally from Scotland. So I grew up in Edinburgh um, with two parents who are both optometrists and they run their own business. So Laura and Crystal grew up at among crystal optometry and you know spent from about the age of about six being in the family business obviously not working at six but (laughs) (laughs) um being around that environment um and then I have a father who is an optometrist but also obsessed with technology so he um bought me my first coding book when I was about 11 and so I think a combination of growing up in Scotland it makes anyone from Scotland's very hardy and stubborn um but also growing up around that um, family business always gave me a real interest I think in I didn't know it was entrepreneurialism at the time but that's what it was mm. yeah it's so interesting I love to ask that question because it I think it, what our parents do and where we grew up really does play a role in what we do today and it it's so interesting that you said that they ran a business and it was in a very different field to I guess what you're doing but it still does translate what were some of those you know what did you love to do as a child what were some of those in those early years of you know, Lauren, what did she love to do? <laughs> um, weirdly enough, lots of things she loves to do now, which is, <laughs> I think we never really change. Um, so when I was younger, I became absolutely fascinated by space. So I used to write to NASA and um, <laughs> ask them to send me workbooks on how I could be an astronaut. And when I was about 11, my dad, mum and dad actually both sat me down and said, I've never had the best of health. They kind of let me know that, Lauren, you're never going to be an astronaut. And it absolutely broke my heart. And it was the same week my guinea pig died. I remember being horrified. Um, And that is when I got into technology and started to look at, at the time, we had HTML, which is now, you know, the basis of a lot of um, coding languages. But I became fascinated by what we could do with technology. So if I couldn't be an astronaut, at least I'd be able to be doing something that was different and unique. Um, So I saved up... um, all my pocket money and I bought a translucent blue keyboard in the summer of it must have been about maybe 1990 or 2001 Um, and with that I got my first ever computer so actually growing up I was always obsessed with a project on the computer or building something or designing something we've recently found in my house in Edinburgh my mum was cleaning out and she found old wireframe sketches of my first ever website (laughs) Which was called Space Info. It's called Space Info. And um, it was a site all about um, different space travels and little stories and games about space. And I printed out business cards and gave them out at school, which you can imagine I got severely bullied for. (laughs) I think I made, I was 11. So I I made a deal with the librarian that she would um, give them out when she would get the books returning. Um, So I think that it was always... um, the entrepreneurialism was always there um, from a very early age, but it was all very much centered around space for a very long time. It's so interesting looking back, isn't it? I mean, that thing of the business cards, I think that says it all, you know, I Mm. think when you're that determined to get your business out there at 11 Mm. and you're passing them around, despite the fact that people might be laughing at you, (laughs) um, I think it really does say it all. I'm so interested to kind of hear about how that then translated into, you know, late teens, into university. You know, you studied initially at the University of York, Bachelor of Arts, and then later did a master's degree at the University of Edinburgh in science. Like what was that 
that time like for you? And I guess what did you learn about the world around you? Yeah, so there's a gap in the middle as well. So I lived in Budapest and Hungary for two years. Oh, so yeah, so around about 15, I um, unfortunately, looking back, so I'm actually quite severely dyslexic. I didn't know at the time, but I started to get really overwhelmed with learning to code. So um, I think the next thing for me was figuring out, well, how is the world coded? How does the world work? So became very obsessed with history. Um, and some half my family is from a Polish heritage. So became really obsessed with Eastern European history. And that's what I did at York University, um, first of all. And then I started working in the summers at a place called the Cold War Research Center in Budapest, where I was basically um, digitalizing their archives. So I got to do a bit of coding as well, but also be involved in the history side. And that's when I decided to move to Eastern Europe. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, and became... Um, very much obsessed with what we can learn from research and a lot of what our business does now and the way that Hassel was built has been on this base level of research and strategy and looking back what it was then is that was learning the raw skills of how you research so what we were doing at the Cold War Research Center was we were trying to rewrite parts of history that had been only written from the Soviet perspective so what was actually happening in these countries what was their culture like um, so I lived in Budapest for two and a half years. And during that time, so I um, actually have an autoimmune condition that I've had since I was born. So I actually got too unwell when I was in Budapest. So that's when I moved back to Edinburgh to finish off my master's of science. But it was all around, can we research cultures and norms? And that nowadays really informs the way that we do user design in-house. Huge. Oh my <laughs> goodness, your story is even better than I thought. <laughs> I want to talk a bit more about that time in Budapest. You know, I think travel, it does something to us. I think it yeah. it makes us see the world and our lives and everything in a different way. You know, what was that, I guess, those pivotal two and a half years in Budapest, living there, I'm guessing it was by yourself. What was that like for you? And I guess what, well, what was one of your key takeaways during that time? Yeah, I think that, so the place I was studying is called Central European U University. It's since been um, pushed out of Hungary because the government doesn't want it there. It's now in Vienna. So I was studying in a very rigorous environment where all of a sudden um, the level of research that you're meant to be doing is just 10 times harder than it was at home. So for me, what I really got out of it was that while the academic side was really difficult, you kind of go to a new country just assuming that everything's culturally going to be identical. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have this shock when you realize, you know, even the way I order groceries needs to be entirely different now. So being able to take a step back and realize that you have to adapt and being able to adapt was really, really pivotal for me. And I think that it's something that I then took with me, just the ability to be like, okay, I'm in a new environment. I've got a completely new situation. How do I make this work for me? What do I change about the way I behave or the way that I work or what do I need to learn to really progress in this environment? Um, so yeah, it was an absolutely fascinating place. And it's just a place that's full of, like p the Hungarian people are so incredibly stubborn about their culture. And so are the Scots, you know. <laughs> so it was, yeah, also amazing to see both the differences that had to adapt to, but also the similarities. And you really realize that we're all the same. <laughs> How can we better learn to adapt? I think that it's really... Um, about life experience I think if you haven't been pushed into situations or you don't 
push yourself into situations where you have to adapt, then you never really pick it up along the way. You know, you can't really learn it from a book. You have to go out there. And for me, at 20 years old, deciding to move to Eastern Europe with a severe autoimmune condition sounds really mad. If it was, if I had a daughter and they did that, I would react the way that my parents didn't. Um, but I think that's really the key point is that if you don't live these life experiences, then you don't get to learn from them. Um, yeah. just could not agree more. I think that, yeah, I think that it's just actually going out there and living it and doing it and putting yourself in these uncomfortable positions, even when people maybe think you're crazy, yeah. you know, and I think that so translates to entrepreneurship and business and all of that goodness. So I love how, yeah, I love how you mentioned that. Before we dive deeper into kind of how you started your businesses and the first one being your creative, I want to talk a bit more about the move to Australia. So, I mean, it's quite left field, you know, <laughs> when you go, when you're anywhere in Europe, obviously there are many Aussies over there, but it's still a bit of a novelty for a European, I guess, or someone in the from the UK to kind of come over and really set up shop here, which is what you did. Yeah. Talk to us a bit about that decision there, I guess, after university. Yes, so I actually, when I was in Budapest, met a boy who is Australian. Who <laughs> <laughs> is Australian, um, Max. So we've been together now for seven years. So wow. he was a huge pull, but we did, we lived in Edinburgh for a year. And then for me, I've just always had um, itchy feet, which now that I realize I have a business, I was actually probably constantly looking for something I could get my teeth sunk into in terms of a project in a business. But before you have that, it's kind of, well, where's next? What are we going to do next? So um, also, I think that when you come here, I came here for three months and I saw the environment in which people were getting opportunities and also how diverse Australia can be. Um, I felt really at home. So something particularly about Melbourne that reminds me of Glasgow, which is like the world's friendliest place that people don't think it is. Um, and so, yeah, it just really, really felt like home. Um, and decided to move over. So um, my other half is originally from Sydney, mm. but we moved down to Melbourne straight away. Yeah, Very interesting. Mm. Talk to us a bit about those kind of early days in Melbourne, finding your feet, new place. I mean, you know, it is, it is different. Yeah, I think this is the point where we can go into the disasters. Yes, um, yeah, love straight disasters. Straight into disasters. <laughs> so I um, uh, moved to Melbourne. I've been there for maybe six to eight weeks at the time. What I didn't realize now having hired people myself is that you can make your CV too academic, you know? So I had this CV that was like a love letter to research. <laughs> um, so no one wanted to hire me. So, um, and I had, by that point I had, my um, bachelor's degree, I had my master's and I had a fellowship from Budapest. So I'm really, I've been in the academic world a lot. I nearly did my PhD. So I think it would be easy for me to get a job. Um, it really wasn't. So the first job I ever got was a three week um, contract in an archive in Altona North, mm. scanning Jetstar receipts. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and when I saw archive, I was like, oh, research archive. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and then I got there and I remember just like, and Altona North is, you know, it's a great place to live, I'm sure, but to work in a warehouse there when you've built it up in your mind. So um, again, another opportunity we have to adapt. So I just, I kept thinking, how can I make the best out of the situation? And um tried to do some proofreading for them but it was just the whole actually wasn't very good at it either that's the thing people always think you're like a shining star in these situations I was terrible at archiving jet star receipts um 
So I did that for about three weeks and then later found um, a job via LinkedIn that was, um, I went as admin assistant, but I was working um, at an investment firm that's in the city, just as an admin assistant at first, and then worked my way around different departments there. So that's when I started to get some really interesting experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize at the time how unique it was to be in those sort of spheres where you're working among people that have invested in things like Seek and Seek Learning. Um, but looking back, that was actually really fascinating. So within about, um, it must have been about nine, ten months at the investment firm, they had one of their projects was a charity, and they um, actually hired the Honourable Julia Gillard to be uh-huh. their chancellor of the charity. And I think because I'm not Australian, so I'm not... Um, didn't have any political bias but I also didn't like curtsy I didn't see her as a celebrity I was asked if I wanted to be her assistant for the time she was on it (laughs) within about a year and a bit of working in Australia I was one week of every month was um basically uh, working with Julia Gillard doing research reports for her being in meetings with her so it was a very wild (laughs) wild turnaround from the jet star moment it's crazy how life throws us these kind of curveballs and you know one thing one opportunity we see may not be what it what it we thought it would be but then the next is so much more than we ever could have imagined yes. you know what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe you know the opportunity that they thought was the one just really really isn't and maybe they're feeling really stuck and like nothing's working in their favor what advice would you give to them I think the number one advice in that situation is to be able to dust it off. And that comes in many ways. Some people, you know, they want to take a week off doing the job search, for example, or they just need to go somewhere on holiday because they thought it was going to be the one. But you have to still have that level of enthusiasm to every situation. And that's something that even to this day, the way that I was the first day in the Jetstar archives is very similar to the way I am now when I'm, you know, on a new project that might be um, co-designing with government. Like it's the same thing. So it's all about, I think, being able to bounce back um, and just, yeah, keep the level of enthusiasm. Because I do think that enthusiasm is the one thing that's, a, quite rare and B, quite contagious. Like you can tell, you don't have to be perfect at the job, but if you're just so keen, that gets picked up really easily. I could not agree more. The more keen, the better. Yes. <laughs> For everyone listening. No, I, I, yeah, I just think you, you nail that. I'm really interested to kind of dive a bit deeper into after that time and, and your, your first business, your creative. I think you started that in late 2015. And look, I guess... My question around this is how do you make the transition from working with, you know, in such a kind of great role and, and job to kind of to going, you know what, I think it's time to do something on my own. Yeah. Uh, well, cue second disaster. Yeah. Um, I got. Listening. Yes. I got headhunted when I was at the investment firm by a, a software consultancy company and they said, come and work for us. Within five years, we'll make you CEO of one of the businesses. You give us everything for five years. You give us that enthusiasm. Um, I only last six weeks. I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm a real stubborn person. I'm normally in it for the long term. But it actually turned out so the CEO was really, he had me crying, oh which I never God. normally cry. He told me that um, official consultants wear pencil skirts. Um, yeah, he told me that I was a silly little girl and that potentially all I was useful for was academic research. So I actually, oh, in between, goodness. yeah, so 
and I, the business was actually started by my two co-founders and then I was looking for something to get involved with. So the actual backstory is, is that I thought I had my dream job in the software firm. And because I was so obsessed from a young age with software, this for me was my moment. And then he just broke me down. So in answer to your question, I was sitting on the sofa. I think I decided at one point I was going to be a food blogger. Like yeah. I went through like, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. Blogger. I'm going to become Instagram famous yeah. as a food blogger. You watch me. <laughs> <laughs> um, my other half came home one day and I was like making homemade cookies and like trying to take <laughs> flat lays off them. It was not good. So actually, um, my involvement in Your Creative and what then became their, Your Creative was really good timing that two of my friends had come up with this great idea to start off on their own mm. so I went to Sydney to visit them to have a break so when I was in Budapest I had met Mitch who's now my co-founder um, and he is my partner Max's best friend we'd had this huge big fight one night in Budapest about Microsoft versus Apple so he's a full stack coder and since then we'd been like absolutely such good friends so I went up to Sydney to get some light relief from the tragic life that was me sitting on the sofa food blogging <laughs> Um, and he had just left a job being digital art director at another agency. And he said, look, myself and my friend James, who's a really great designer, we're thinking of starting something up by themselves. And I think I got them like in the midst of a party. It was like 2 a.m. I went up to them and was like, can I join in? Like, you need someone to manage it. Um, so it was all really good timing. I actually didn't, I didn't necessarily plan it, but what I was doing in that month and a half sitting on the sofa crying, making cookies was... <laughs> I had an idea book and I kept writing in the idea book. It was, there was female mentorship. A lot of it was around about if there's other people that had been through an experience like mine where they'd been broken down that much, what would they do to bounce back? And could I come up with a business idea for that? So I was already thinking about business ideas, but I definitely didn't know what direction it would take. And then when I went up to Sydney and met the boys, we all just, we actually just all sat on the floor in their new townhouse one night and talked about it. Right, let's give it a go. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that was really went from there. Yeah. Oh my goodness. They, they say the best decisions are made when there's alcohol involved. I think, <laughs> I think that 2am, you know, walking up, marching up yeah. to them going, I want to be a part of this. Yeah. And um, I actually didn't know James at the time. So he oh, always says, no. he remembers me like coming up to the dance floor and being like, I heard you're starting a business. <laughs> I'd love to get involved. So, um, yeah, from there on, we just became inseparable. So we actually started the business. I was in Melbourne and the two boys were in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So for the first six months, um, I was working part-time at a place called The Cool Hunter. So I was a strategist there. Um, my very good friend there was the brand manager. Um, so I was doing strategy work there. Um, and he later became one of our first clients. Wow. Yeah. So we did six months Tiger Air flights and sleeping on Mitch's floor. And we had like, I think we had a fence company and we had a ceramics company and we were making them websites. And then um, after six months, the boys said, oh, you know, we've made our first big job. Are we going to split the money? I said, actually, no. Instead, no one's going to take any wage for six months. We're all going to quit our jobs. Oh. And we're going to live off. So we lived off $10,000 for six months. We had two grand a month, including rent each. Okay. Um, and we moved them to Melbourne. And they lived in a house that had, in Brunswick, that had two floors and the third floor was basement. So that became our office. So that was 2000 and I think that was the, the 15 was when we started and the 16 was when we moved into the basement. Huge. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. See, this is why I love these type of conversations. People think, 
you know, they see you on the Telstra Women <laughs> Business Awards and, and whatnot and they see all the glossy things and they see all the articles written about hassle now and they just, you know, the, the yeah. conception is that, oh, well, she must have, you know, she's special or maybe something happened. That, yeah, you know, or but she really planned it. It was all planned. Yeah, it was all planned out. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. Yeah. This is why I love it. So I think my question really there is, why did you make the call that you guys should just quit your jobs? Like, why not keep going kind of, you know, um, with that on the side? I never even had a plan B at that point. So that's the way I would describe it. And we've actually, we tried to look back before because there's a real trust between the founding team and we never, like, we never quite understand why, but we just all decided one night in Sydney, we're like, so what we'll do is, you know, in a month and a half's time, you'll move down. I'll buy you, I'll get you a house. So we rented out a house and I was the fake, um, you know, you have to get a a lease or whatever. You yes. have to leasing it. So I pretended to be Mitch's EA and like, <gasps> said, and said like, he's a great guy. You should give him this house. And oh, then um, I think we pretended that they were actually a couple. I can't remember the details, but we're like, if we can just get a space, yeah. we're just going to make it work. And we just, nobody ever even questioned it I think we were at that age as well like we didn't have a lot of responsibility we were tied to and everyone was up for the challenge so it was more back to that enthusiasm element we're all just so keen that that was the next step if you could make five thousand dollars in two months then if you all had full time so we had this target I said by December if we've saved up thirty six thousand dollars then we'll be able to hire someone and live for the next six months so we had a timeline of like, if it doesn't work out by December, we'll maybe all go back to getting jobs and I'll maybe go back to Jetstar. <laughs> <laughs> Jetstar, watch out, she's coming. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's 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 so important to have those timelines, to have those goals, but then also to make those calculated risks. Yep. You know, I think so many of us are quite afraid to do so. Even if we're young, even though, you know, many of us out there listening in are, you know, we in our 20s don't have too much to, to yeah. lose. Why do you think we hold back? I think that a lot of the time, especially in this environment where you see these businesses raise lots of money, for example, everyone comes at it with this mindset of what do I need to succeed? But actually what they should be thinking about is what do I not need? What is the bare minimum that we need to get through? Because if we're really talented and we have a lot of enthusiasm and our ideas are great, that's the baseline. So I think it's about instead of excess, it's like, okay, well, what is the bare minimum? I remember telling Mitch that he had to make his own packed lunches because <laughs> he'd never done it. Like he'd been working as a digital art director for years. Like he was getting sushi every lunchtime. And I remember him sending me a picture of sitting in Sydney eating square sandwiches that he'd made. And he was like, this is it, isn't it? This is as bleak as it gets. I was like, hopefully, I don't know. Maybe it gets worse. You know, it's, um, so, yeah, I think that that's the fundamental difference is what do I not need? What can I remove? What can I live without just to see if I have the talent and the enthusiasm to get to the next stage? Mm, huge. Amazing. So, look, I want to dive into that next stage for you. So, you know, you're starting up in the basement. It's all happening. You know, what were some of those first steps you took to kind of really get um, the company going? And then how did that transition over the years and lead you to hassle? Yeah. So I think that there's two parts. There's the first part is that we always knew that our unique selling point was that we were going to be really high quality in the work that we did. We didn't really know what it would be that was different, but within a few months, we realized that we could do every project from the point of view of strategy and user-centric design. So 
in order to do that, no one's going to give you the projects that you want, mm -hmm. first of all, because it's a competitive market. So the first thing we did was a lot of free work and we actually got our big break in. So we moved to Melbourne and then this is actually a really good story. So we moved to Melbourne, we're like unloading the uh, basement, which to be our office. And the only thing we bought was um, two beanbags which ended up going everywhere all over the floor. Oh. Um, and I had contacted TEDx Melbourne that I think, I think TED Talks are fantastic anywhere but particularly the Melbourne division I've always loved and I said look we're a new agency we'll do your digital and your branding absolutely for free all we want is a shout out at the conference that's all we want um and that was about a week into moving to Melbourne and I actually then got an email saying oh come meet us at the Lint Cafe we actually we don't have a website the website's broken can you come help us so it's a bit of fate that they a week before their conference was a week after it was two weeks after we moved down so we finally, they said, look, if you can build us a website in a week. So we didn't have any Wi-Fi. So Mitch was stealing the Wi-Fi off the cafe next door. We're unpacking and he's coding a website. OMG. <laughs> so we're all sitting there. So within two weeks of moving to Melbourne, we were all sitting at TEDx Melbourne with our logo up on the screen. And we're like, this is it. The phone's going to go off. And then at the end, they went to thank everyone. And so we're called Your Creative. Mm -hmm. And they got up and the founder, who's absolutely lovely, he looked down at us and it'd been a busy day for him. He's like, we just want to thank, and he said, young creative. Oh, and we're sitting man. there and at the time we're like 23, 24. It's <laughs> like, we're really young and all our faces just <laughs> dropped and our logo is just like a big YC. So like, oh no, oh. people are going to Google young creative and they'll never find us. But luckily TEDx Melbourne for us provided a really good case study for us mm. to then go out and find clients. So, um, that was probably the first big break. But then alongside that, what we started to think about was we realized that I really wanted to do strategy and research. I didn't necessarily want to be managing projects. So that's when we started looking at what are now some of the main competitors to Hassle. So we started looking at all these different online tools and we we're like, they're all just a bit complicated for our cl Like our clients aren't going to use them. We, we might use them, but our clients won't. So Mitch said, look, I'm going to start building our own version of this. And, you know, I'll do it at night. I'll do it whenever we can fit it in. So Mitch started building what's now Hassle. It was originally called Box Lamp because he had a box lamp in his bedroom. <laughs> um, and he started building us a platform that would have all our communications, all our files, and all our project management on one platform. And that was the simplest thing. And we didn't necessarily, we always thought that we would launch it, but we didn't necessarily think that, we thought it would be a in great internal tool at first. We didn't see the full potential at that time. Um, because it, yeah, it was just, it was a side project. It was something that we needed and we built up. So that's how Hassle came about. And so for us with the product side, it wasn't about having a huge break. It was about really planning. How are we going to, with such a small team, build something that's bigger than us mm -hmm. and planning that from like three months in. It's so interesting to hear about, yeah, just kind of what those early steps were and the fact that you did kind of have to do a job that was, you, you know, you just kind of got really, you kind of pulled out of nowhere in the mix, in the midst of the chaos. Mm. Um, and then later on, you know, we're just building that tool for yourselves to use. Yeah. And then obviously it's now it's hassle, which is huge. I want to just dive a bit deeper into kind of how you got from, okay, we're now working with TEDx Melbourne and, and we did that one job for them to we've built up a bit of a client base. Like how, what were those steps like? How how long was that period of time? And I guess, how do you think you grew as a team? Yeah. 
Well, we used to be called Foxhole Digital, and then we realized that it sounds really weird and Scottish. My Scottish accent, <laughs> Foxhole Digital, just sounds really dodgy. So <laughs> I think the first thing when the name changed, so we had, James was known in the design community as being a fantastic designer, even though he was young. Mitch had worked previously, and I had worked, I didn't actually have many people from the past that I took with me, but they both had reputations. So we were lucky enough in the sense that it's not on the same level when someone leaves a big advertising agency, but we had enough people within our network that we could at least reach out to. Um, so that really helped. But also, like I mentioned earlier, um, being able to do the Cool Hunter, which was I was working there and then being able to pitch to him um, and say, look, we would love to rebrand you, redo your e-commerce. We'll do everything. It will be really cost effective for you because we have no portfolio. We can't show you. Um and so he has 600,000 Instagram followers. He has wow. about 100,000 people a month on his website. Wow. So that was our first, our second first big break was let's also have something that's a paid job that is a really good case study. So, and that goes back to, I think, um, just having people that will give you a chance, mm -hmm. you know, like if you're that enthusiastic, like when I came to that pitch, we had mock-ups, we had proposal documents, we had interactive prototypes, like we were not missing this opportunity. Mm -hmm. So after those two, it was really about, for us, and I don't know, it's different for different agencies, um, but it took a good couple of years before referrals and ongoing like clients that may never know us, but Google us and find mm -hmm. us. So for us, it was about finding people that we really thought we could add value to. So um, I would go to a restaurant or a hotel and the experience would be amazing. But when I was on their website, their digital experience just didn't match up. Mm -hmm. And then I'd reach out to them with a prototype or with an idea and say, is there any chance I could have, you know, five minutes of your time? I'd love to pitch this to you. So it was being really targeted. We never did any sort of digital marketing or anything widespread. It was always like, let's find particular use cases that we think we can add value to. And if we don't think we can add value, let's not. Mm. Huge. And I think that, that I guess, conscious mindset around, we're just going to see who we actually, we're going to so seek out people, reach out to them, try and get a bit of their time, and then actually see if we can add value to them and then over-deliver. Mm. I think that's just huge. You mm. know, I think so many of us get so caught up with this whole, we have to run Facebook ads, we have to get our name out everywhere to everyone. I almost think that's the wrong approach to take. We've never done a Facebook ad. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think awards are really valuable. If you yeah. can do the work and over deliver, then what you've done is say you've actually gone 50% over budget because mm. you want to have that case study. You need mm. to get as much as you can out of that case study. So then looking at awards... Um, for anyone that's Victorian-based, the Premier Design Awards every year, mm -hmm. they're completely free to enter. Um, and it's a really good platform for you to share your work. So finding avenues where you can share your work. And then for us, a huge part of the strategy was always 5% of the work that we do is pro bono. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be able to pick projects where either we could over-deliver and have it factored into our business model, or we could just pick a project that you know might not have had the funding, but the potential was so, we could add so much value. So one of our first projects with that, we used to work with, um, one of our first projects was Tom Organic, which is oh, the, huge. yeah, so um, Tom Organic is, if anyone doesn't know, is organic tampons and feminine hygiene products. They are awesome. Um, and so. we went to the extremes on campaigns for them and different work. So um, through that, they were doing an Empowered Women campaign where they were giving away a grant. And we met one of the finalists there 
Rebecca, who owns a company called Shifra. So Shifra is, um, well, the idea was, what well, it didn't exist at the time, but the idea was to create a web-based app that would provide um, Australian, people that had traveled to Australia who are refugee women with female and sexual health information in their native language, mainly Arabic. So about a year into the business, I pitched to the boys, look, I know we have this 5% and I know it's meant to go to lots of different things, but I just really think that Shifra could go all the way. It's such a good idea. It's mm -hmm. so simple. Like we could really, she has all the content. She also has the connections. So anyway, for the past three years now, ever since that, we've been working on Shifra. Um, and it's got some funding from government now and now staff are in Kenya replicating it there. So um, I think taking chances on things, and that again is a calculated risk, like the same way that you calculate you need 36 grand to survive for the next six months is, well, what could we do that could have really big impact, get us really well known, but it's not necessarily going to make us money straight away. So I think that's the hard part. And for us, it gets easier every year because that first year you get to a stage where you're running out of money. You think, we've had Lebanese pizza wraps every night for a month We're now. Done. I really want a steak. <laughs> Um, but you just keep going, yeah. Mm, huge. And keep going you did. I think it's so interesting hearing about, um, you know, what's happening in Africa, your team over there now and whatnot, and that project you took on just kind of out of the desire to, I guess, impact and make a bigger impact and kind of get your brand out there. I think that really comes down to that plays a role in so many areas of our lives. You know, I think it comes down to our desire to want to make money and live, but also do what we're passionate about and make an impact. For our peers out there listening who are wrestling with, do I go and get that job and make a lot of money? Or do I try this startup thing or this side hustle thing and really pursue that? Like, what advice would you give to them? I think that it's, very difficult and I think it's more it's difficult the older that you get because mm. you have more responsibility you have this like inevitable doom that you're running out of time <laughs> you know you're like I'm freaking out um but I think it's about at least dipping your toe in the water to see how excited you get by that startup idea or that social impact idea because if that's what really revs your engine you're going to find out five years after earning a bunch of money that you're miserable with just the money so you might as well try the thing that is buzzing in your head if it doesn't go away for me these ideas have never gone away and I've always thought about them and what I'm really very grateful for is I have two co-founders so when the idea buzzes around we meet up and I say I just I can't stop thinking about this thing I think we should do it and you have people to talk about that with but I think if it if it stays around for a while you've got to dip your toe in but I would my number one suggestion is so I do a lot of mentoring now for um, people that are looking to start up businesses particularly with science backgrounds. And I think you've got to validate the market. Like you can't go all the way in. What I see time and time again is people that they might have got loans, they might have given up their job or they've mortgaged their house and they go all in. Mm. And we're in an environment now where whether it's user testing, whether it's online advertising, whatever it is, you can test your idea before you go all in. And we've always done that with Hassle. So if nobody wanted to use the free version of Hassle, we would have just used it in-house. Mm -hmm. If nobody wanted to use the paid version of Hassle, we would have just kept those features to ourselves. So taking risks can be incredibly calculated these days because you have like an, literally an unlimited audience online to test it with. Um, so yeah, don't go all in at once. <laughs> huge, yeah. huge. And I just think, yeah, I just could not agree more. I think there's such a difference between that testing of the market and that calculated risk than to 
oh, I've just got this idea and I really, really, really want to do it, so let's just quit everything. Yeah. You know? What? Where has that shown up for you again in your life where you've kind of, you know, maybe outside of um, your creative your has- uh, and hassle, where has that shown up where you've really thought – like thought about it, taking a calculated risk and it's kind of either either ended up how you thought or maybe something different happened. It's difficult. I feel mm-hmm. like I don't take any risks outside of work because work's so risky Coming all to the Australia, time. I made. <laughs> work's so risky all the time. Um, <laughs> something that happens in work a lot, mm-hmm. I think that – so I consult a lot to other businesses. So mm-hmm. something I often have to do that's outside of the core of running your creative or outside of hassle is – then try and figure out what the risk factor for them is. So we constantly get asked from people to build the mobile apps and not every business idea needs a mobile app. Loads of businesses actually, people don't want to use a mobile app. You know, they want to go on the browser, they want to see a physical store. So I think that within the technology space when it comes to the risk factor, it's just like it's such an endeavor to build stuff. Like it's not quite like you're building a robot, but it's, you know, it's months and a lot of money is that I constantly um, challenging people when they say it needs to be this way, it needs to be that way. Because in the end of the day, you just don't want to waste any money or time, you know, time's money. Yeah. And then personally, I just don't take a lot of risks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> She's all safe. <laughs> I'm safe. I'm safe. <laughs> I love that. Well, we're taking a risk today, having a wine and a espresso martini during our podcast interview. First time I've actually ever done this when at the SB Hotel <laughs> here in Melbourne. No, I love it. Oh, Lauren, so much, so much. I love that. Look, I want it. I want to have a couple of like last few questions mm-hmm. they want to dive into before we wrap up today. The first one is, what has been one of your greatest failures to date in the business or in your on your entrepreneurial journey? Um, greatest failures to date. So maybe about uh, a year into the business, I had gone to a conference where I heard somebody speaking about. Um, a 3D modeling tool that they could do and I watched it and then they went to the demo and when they pressed go on the demo it broke and I immediately thought well all these people here are so excited about this but it doesn't work we should take it on you know like we should so I went up to the um, founder afterwards no names mentioned and was like you know you should come and meet us we're looking to do a project and at the time we had you know hassle in the work so we had enough side hustle to the <laughs> side hustle we didn't need anything else <laughs> But I delved straight in. I invited them to our office. They started working at our office. And within about six months, we realized that it was just, we could build the technology, but we just, we couldn't work together as a founding team. So in hindsight, it was actually invaluable for me because it made me realize how important my relationships with my co-founders are. So it's not everyone gels. It's actually like a relationship. You know, it's like you're dating constantly. (laughs) Um, And... Yeah, it was just a disaster. And I think it cost us quite a lot of money in legal bills. And then, yeah, we had to, we had those IP that never got used. So that was a real looking back disaster. And the main learning from that was like, we've got it good in our team. Like, <laughs> you know, focus on the stuff that you've got right already. Um, mm. Because you can get the more opportunity you get, the more it kind of spirals into, I want to try and do this and try and do that. And you're actually, you're only, we're only a small team or a team of 10. So, you have to start not necessarily saying no to things, but not being as enthusiastic towards every single idea if you can't commit to helping them. Mm. Yeah. Huge, huge. Oh my goodness, I love it. Look, 
Lauren, I want to dive into a bit of what you've, all that you've accomplished over the years. So look, it's been three years since you started Hassle and you've grown Hassle to become, I think, no, so I think about five since you started the agency. Yeah, five. We've been been in business about four and a half and then Hassle has been three and then it's been live for a year and a half. Oh, my goodness, crazy stuff. And look, you've grown to become, you know, Hassle's grown to become the go-to, one of the go-to project management tools for many agencies and entrepreneurs around here in Oz. You know, you yourself in 2019, so last year, won the Telstra Business Victoria Victorian Emerging Leaders Award, um, which is absolutely huge and just so cool to see. You know, I guess my final, one of my final questions to you is what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who have big goals, who have big dreams and ambitions and, you know, perhaps want to do what they're passionate about, but they're scared. You know, they don't know where to start. They're not too sure if it's going to work out. What advice would you give? I think the first stage, and I do this for any project to this day, is just pen and paper. So I literally will just take a pen and paper and I'll go sit outside and I'll just let it all come out. And normally it's like some really off diagrams that later on become part of a business model somewhere. But if you can let it out and then you look at it on a piece of paper and you think that's smart, then that is, in my mind, at least it's a good idea to pursue. Mm -hmm. If you're having to really grain at it, the moment something feels tension or you know you you think about whether or not you'd rather be doing something else right now it's not worth it because you're going to have that literally every day so it's got to flow out of you and then you've got to look at it and get excited by it being scared is fine but as long as that enthusiasm just that's what takes over when you look at it the idea yeah pen and paper pen and paper yeah no apps Um, no (laughs) apps get rid of those apps (laughs) I love it. Look, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Lauren, for the brilliant work you've done that you're doing, for showing us that if we step out of our comfort zone, if we, you know, step out into something a little bit different, whether it's moving countries or studying elsewhere and or starting a business, you know, you show us that it can bring you a great level of fulfillment and you can actually make an impact. And so for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So look, our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? The value of pursuing what you're most passionate about is seeing how far you can develop, especially as a female. Like I never thought I would be able to be this version of myself. You only get that by pursuing the passion. And then if you're really lucky, you then get to put that onto your staff. So see, you then get to see how far they can go in their professional development. So I think yeah, that's what it's about. It's like, what version of myself can I create by doing all this great work? Love it. Lauren, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, I've had a blast. Where can people learn more about you, Hassle, and your creative? Oh, probably LinkedIn stalked me. And then if you jump on <laughs> <Well> Hassle, <laughs> if you jump on Hassle, you can sign up and give it a go as well. Love it. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Lauren. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. 
for more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played. And leave us a review. We produce with passion. And it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.